deep learning is fantastic to solve very, very hard problems. But at the same time, symbolic reasoning really helps out when it comes to define the uh, cert- or define certain fields and provide all of the structure that's necessary for the deep learning models to thrive. The first piece of music generated by a machine was com- that we know of was composed in 1957. Hello folks, may I interest you in some art? Music art that is. I'm Alex Petrus and this is Applied AI Pod. For this episode, we virtually sit down with Valerio Velardo and can't get enough of picking his brains. Pianist, composer, orchestra conductor, physicist, expert in AI applied to music, startup founder, and YouTuber for his AI for Sound and audio community, The Sound of AI. Over the last decade, he's dedicated his life to AI music in all of its forms. Researched it, taught it, developed new technology in the space, built a startup and consulting firm around it. It's all things music and audio. Let's jump right into the magnetic conversation, as there's so much to pick from it. This episode is brought to you by Bucharest.ai, the AI and acceleration community of 3,000 members. Sign up for the community to join AI practitioners, share from their experiences, or gain know-how for your AI startup through their AI pre-accelerator. The artist may actually use all of these applications without she needing necessarily to know all the trickeries and math behind it. And that's perhaps because of the uh, simple interfaces that one can build on top of the mathematical and statistical models, right? But isn't this like uh, tricking? You just learned something isolated without having all the expertise and tricking your way out of getting a good grade or creating something. Isn't AI seen like that because it doesn't bring all the humane uh, facets to it? Uh, well, I don't necessarily think that. I mean, we can think of artificial intelligence as a an augmentation tool, if you will, right? Then the way you use it is a an, it's something different, right? You can use it to replace people, right? For example, creating artificial intelligence systems that can generate music by themselves, completely by themselves, or uh, have some sort of a co-creation where the AI tool is just another tool, creative tool that the person may have access to. And at that point, really, uh, it's not important that you have artificial intelligence behind. It's just another creative agent that you can uh, share ideas with, if you like, and then co-create. And when you collaborate with someone or something else, that always brings to more interesting results. And for example, also on the the side of uh, music composition, you have a lot of composers or the majority of composers or songwriters who are tend to be stuck in a specific musical space. That's perhaps because they've always written music in a certain way. They had a certain background in terms of, I don't know, like perhaps learning classical music or specializing in pop music. But then having some sort of in silico partner 
with which you can exchange ideas and be challenged by some of those ideas can only increase your uh, creativity in the end. It's interesting because um, we've been talking in previous podcast episodes about using uh, natural language processing for help in email um, uh, shadowing for writing, giving you recommendations uh, in completing sentences and keywords. And from past podcast conversations, we realize that actually the, the use of technology, the use of uh, natural language processing uh, techniques in uh, helping us write better emails is actually influencing our behaviors. Because you wouldn't have thought of something uh, if you wouldn't have seen the recommendation or the completion of a certain phrase. So that potential influence of behavior might dictate uh, a new direction um, for the tone of your email uh, or for what you're trying to, to obtain through the email. In most of the cases, would, it would be a good uh, sh uh, uh, shift of direction because the, the email might uh, turn from negative to neutral or positive as an emotion tone and so on and so forth. But I'm thinking now in correlating with uh, creative art, uh, isn't uh, practically this AI creative agents uh, used in a way that they are, they they will be orchestrating our moods in the sense that they, you can say, of course, uh, forced that uh, creative agents that uh, build or co-create, uh, uh, for example, music in making us feel a certain mood, uh, they are somehow orchestrating and forcing us to feel a certain mood. So that would be... Uh, you know, by far uh, saying that, for example, a machine is selling us or orchestrating for us our mood. Uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I think that that already happens to a certain extent with human created artifacts. Let those be musical pieces, a poetry or literature. Of course, all the creators inject a certain level of emotion into their work. And I really don't see that much of a difference with uh, how AI is going to intervene in this sphere, really. Because at the end of the day, this consumption will be most likely emotion-based, just the, the normal consumption for normal human-created uh, uh, artifacts. So in that respect, I don't really see that much of a difference. The, the interesting part for me, once again, is for the creators to be able to discover uh, new uh, ideas, creative ideas that perhaps they weren't aware of. They wouldn't necessarily choose uh, consciously. And so in that respect, I see a potential to augment the creativity of humans. And at the end of the day, if you are using this AI creative agents as applications which augment but do not replace the creator, what happens is that the, the, the creators will have access to a whole new set of possibilities, uh, possibilities that are not currently available to them. But in the end, the emotional layer will definitely be mediated and negotiated at the end by the uh, creator, the human creator. 
so basically uh, if an AI music artist or an AI or an artist wants to use AI to augment or simply uh, get off their creative block, for example, they may use the technology to basically get off this block and restart creating their, their art once again. Or just augment or open, open yes. to more audiences. Yeah, absolutely. I see that there are different potential applications here. So one is the one that you just mentioned, so writer's block. And here I have an example that's kind of history of generative music or artificial intelligence used in the, with the ultimate goal of generating music. So the example, well, the example or this story goes like this. So you have David Cope, who's a composer and professor in a... Uh, university in California, and he had a writer's block. He couldn't just write uh, music anymore. So what he did, uh, I think back in the 80s or early 90s, he trained, well, he, he didn't really necessarily trained because machine learning wasn't really there uh, yet as is today, but he created this AI creative application, music creative application, and he trained it. Uh, on a lot of his music and then he used this AI partner to get out of his uh, writer's block. So this is definitely one possible application for uh, AI music uh, augmentation. But then I definitely see other possibilities, like for example, experimenting things that are outside our own musical uh, bubble. Of course, when we create music as composers, we we tend to stay in what's comfortable for us, what we know. But then being challenged by an agent that uh, sends us new type of music or new musical ideas is something interesting that can just spark something uh, valuable to pursue and to base our new musical creation on. So we can say that practically AI is currently reshaping what creativity means, for example, in the modern world, because you would use AI, you'd find a new creative way, or you would even push your own uh, limits uh, for the art. Absolutely, absolutely. I think at the end of the day, in the creative field, AI is yet another tool. If you think, uh, let's say, before the advent of digital tools, say, if we are referring to music, towards the end of the 80s, you had the a kind of digital audio workstation, like Cubase, entering the game. And that completely revolutionized the music creative process because all of a sudden, uh, people had musicians, producers, had access to a full, potentially a full orchestra or a ton of musical instruments directly in their personal computers. And this completely changed the way we make music. It just opened up new possibilities. In the same manner, AI just opens up new possibilities. Of course, there's a difference between a DAW or a digital audio workstation and an AI music creative software. Of course, the, the latter is definitely more intelligent and more creative, whatever that term may actually mean. But at the end of the day, these are tools which tend to augment our 
uh, creative possibilities. And I think this is where the attention on AI and especially on creative AI should be uh, focused on. Perfect. Um, yeah, AI is a tool uh, all for that. Let me prick your brains on. You've mentioned creativity, whatever that means. But I have another word that I have the the phrase whatever that means uh, next to it is the world uh, the world the, the the phrase good music. So what does good music actually mean? How how do we define it uh, from your perspective? Uh, well, I think it's very difficult to define what good uh, music is because at the end of the day, uh, music is in uh, is, a, is a very subjective matter. So what we like in music or what we don't like in music really depends on who you are, what you've been exposed to. And this is also like uh, something that has been extensively studied in the music, in the cognitive music literature. So depending on your background, depending on your musical skills, your musical taste changes quite a lot. For example, if you are... Mm, a trained musician in a certain genre, then uh, you may be able to appreciate music that's quite complex in terms of, for example, harmonic content, rhythmic content, melodic or structural content. Whereas people who don't have that level of training in a a specific genre may find it difficult to listen to music which is too complex and they may not appreciate that. At the end of the day, musical taste... Uh, reduces to identifying patterns. And there's a fantastic book by a computational uh, musicologist that just uh, looks into this idea. If I remember correctly, the, the name of the book is Sweet uh, Anticipation. And basically, this, uh, computer, um, this musicologist states that the the, the stuff that we like is the stuff that we can predict up to a certain percentage, right? So we, we like when, when we listen to a piece of music, we like to recognize patterns, for example, musical motifs, or little musical ideas and identify those. But then while we listen to the music, we have this active process of predicting what's coming next. Now, when we guess what's coming next, then that gives us a certain level of reward. But if we can always guess what's, what's coming next, then that is a little bit boring because the music probably is very flat. It's not really interesting. So in order to like a piece of music, we need to have this, well, first of all, the knowledge of the grammar of that musical piece so that we can uh, guess what's coming next or guess all of the different patterns and how they're going to be uh, unfolded throughout the musical piece. But at the same time, we don't want for the piece to be fully predictable. We want to be surprised, but not too much. This is probably the issue with contemporary art music, music like uh, the one created by Karl-Heinz uh, Stockhausen or Pierre Boulez, uh, which is great music if you have the means to understand it but given it is a very complex type of music the majority of people don't have the tools to appreciate what's going on in that type of music and probably for the majority of the audience that's really not something that they would like all of this to say that 
what we like and what we don't like in music really depends on our musical background the the grammars the musical grammars that we've acquired in with our listening history and with our musical training if we have one so it's really not possible to just say this is good music or this is bad music or if it's possible it is within certain codified rules for example i can tell you if you, for example, composed a, uh, a fugue in the style of Bach, I could tell you, well, this is a good fugue in that style because it just follows certain constraints that were typical of that period and that musical form. But apart from that, you can't say, you, you can't just like provide an absolute and say, yeah, this piece of music is absolutely great or is absolutely rubbish because it really depends on the lens lenses that you apply to analyze that piece of music it's it's definitely an interesting perspective uh, from from my lens i'm looking at it for example so are we better or worse off for with ai in music or in audio i'm looking at the sustainable part of the effort so the effort input and the cost put in to actually um, make an impact, how do we quantify that? And the efficiency output, how can we, how can we tell when AI is efficient? Yeah, that, yeah, that, business person, yeah. yeah. Of course, that, that, that is a huge problem. Any type of artificial intelligence uh, that deals with uh, a creative task, be it generating music or generating paintings or poetry, uh, has really a, a problem, a major problem, and that is evaluation. So in the computational creativity literature, there's a lot that has been proposed for analyzing the, the creative output of these systems and gauging whether or not the output are actually good right, or creative. And now, most of this uh, literature points in the same direction, which is having experts in a specific field, be that music, for example, uh, analyzing the output of a, a, an AR music system in this case, right? So you would have a system that's been trained on some music, then this uh, system would generate uh, new music, and then you would have a panel of art or artists or more generally music experts which would analyze the music and then uh, decide whether or not there's uh, the music first of all is sound once again following certain criteria perhaps stylistic criteria and then also analyzing the the creative capabilities of the uh, system in the end. So this is something that's quite uh, expensive to do. It's uh, really resource intensive because you can imagine that when you train a new system, well, you, you may train a bunch of different systems and then you would like to, to have an answer to the question, which one of these systems is actually the, the best? And of course, you, there's no way other than going to music experts and asking music experts what they think about the results of the artifacts that these systems create. And, but that is not necessarily what uh, works best in terms of uh, business results, right? Because it's one thing uh, kind of 
trying to gauge the level of creativity of a uh, an AI creative system is another thing whether or not that output is going to have a good impact on the market, right? And I don't think like that there's still a solution to this. And this is one of the main differences, for example, between AI creative systems and AI systems which focus on intelligent tasks. Uh, in the former, so the, the creative task, we really don't have a evaluation metrics, objective evaluation metrics that we can use to say, okay, this is a good output, this is a bad output, therefore the model is good or the, therefore the model is bad. While in the in the latter case, in the case of intelligent tasks, for example, speech recognition, we definitely have a ground truth and we can say, yes, this speech recognition system works exactly uh, in 99% of the cases, right? So this is like a little bit of a gray area. And I think at the end of the day, it really depends on each business. So different businesses are going to have different uh, type of goals or different type of business metrics that they want to optimize. And they should use that as a sort of uh, guide or guidance to decide whether or not like those models are actually good or bad, not necessarily relying on more academic uh, ways of telling whether a system is creative or not. It's interesting because um, I I have to agree with the music experts uh, feedbacking and um, saying something is good or bad. I do agree as well with the audience group's uh, feedback because in the end it all um, remains with the customer. So absolutely, and if I can add just one thing there, it may you may be in that awkward situation where uh, experts are telling you something. And the audience is telling you something else. So what should you prioritize in that case? Probably if you are in academia, you would go with uh, the, uh, the expert feedback. But if you are a startup doing some sort of generative music, for example, then probably I would definitely go with uh, the audience feedback and use that as a uh, sort of uh, a driver uh, that provides feedback for uh, the models that you build. It's interesting. Let me let me run by you two perspectives. Then. Mm-hmm. One, a business perspective. We have, for example, my heritage, um, and they built a deep nostalgia um, uh, where they created this. Uh, it was more of a marketing stunt where mm-hmm. they used deep learning and created videos from uh, photos and paintings. Uh, the historical ones that they had uh, access uh, for uh, reusing. Um, and it has gone viral. I'm not sure it has gone viner, viral in a creepy way or not, but we just saw at a big scale uh, through uh, audience uh, uh, adoption and engagement the power of deep, deep fakes content. content. Um, so that that's one perspective of a business using something, testing with the audience, and if it's stuck to the audience, they, they kept it. And the other perspective is a, is not a fully academic one, but it's more towards research and bridging the research and the academia to the commercial world. It's about uh, E. Luther's AI's 6 billion parameter model, GPT-J. Um, 
where they are a, a collective group of researchers is working to open source AI and trying to build uh, and replicate Open's AI's GPT-3, um, so that anyone can have access to something in the likes of GPT-3 um, and actually be build more on top. So this is more bridging AI to commercial, and the first one is fully uh, business perspective. Uh, what do you think about these two completely different approaches and how do you stand uh, for them? I know that the School of AI community that you, you build and you are currently building um, has some interesting open source projects uh, for open source research in, uh, in, uh, in the space of uh, audio. So what's your perspective for this? Uh, yeah, I think the, they're both very le legitimate approaches, I believe. The, the, the former one, um, regarding deepfakes with images and videos. So I think it's it's an interesting marketing stunt, as you, as you put it. I totally agree with that. And that is definitely something that a startup wants to do and should actually do because it just gives you a lot of free press and a lot of visibility. There's definitely a lot of value in that because... Uh, I think like it's 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 a way of showcasing the possibilities of your technology, and that is not necessarily related with the with the research behind. It's way more. Hey, look at this magic technology that I have and how cool it is. And I think it's totally legit that approach. But for my personal taste, I would say that the second approach, that of the open source uh, research, is a really, really interesting. And I think probably this is going to be the, the way forward with many of these applications that we are seeing here in artificial intelligence. And so, and the one that you mentioned regarding like the, the, the replacement or just like the, the re-implementation of a GPT uh, model, uh, it that type of approach has been used already with a lot of success by another like quite big startup right now that's called Hug and Face. And so what they do basically is uh, having a quite large community of NLP, natural language processing experts. And so they built this infrastructure where they have data sets uh, text-based data sets. They have a code base with a ton of state-of-the-art NLP um, and deep learning algorithms, as well as many of these um, de uh, deep learning algorithms that have been trained on those data sets and that are freely available in an open source fashion. And I believe this is a key point in time and in research uh, to have uh, open source. And I think like this is really, really uh, the way forward because through open source, people who haven't been, who, who may be completely scattered all over the world, who may have not the pleasure to necessarily work with each other, now have the opportunity to do so and to contribute to a common goal, which is building all of this infrastructure, all of these frameworks, all of these models and making them available to the wider community. And this can have a very uh, powerful impact on the development of AI at very different levels. From the research side, with people who are more interested in the ins and outs, mathematical ins and outs of uh, deep learning models, 
but at the same time uh, at the level of application because all of a sudden for example in the case of hugging face you have all of these models for uh, generating text for summarizing text and for all sorts of nlp tasks that are ready available and you can just use them and create uh, applications in a very simple way and super straightforward and this is something that not only I really like, but as you mentioned, I have a um, a project that goes in in follows or tries to follow that sort of line. So, uh, with the Sound of AI community, which is a community interested in all things AI, music, audio, uh, we are towards the end of this project that's called Open Source Research, and basically, people more than a hundred. Uh, people from all over the world and with different technical skills and backgrounds are working together to create these sort of deep learning or neural driven synthesizer for synthesizing new guitar sounds using uh, speech uh, recognition as a sort of initial interface. And this is just fantastic on so many levels because first of all, it allows people uh, as I said, which otherwise may not necessarily have the opportunity to work on these projects, to work on these projects, to network, to adva advance in their knowledge of many of these uh, models, of these theories, concepts, but at the same time, it has a positive impact also on the end user who at the end of this project, in our case, is going to be a producer or musician who can actually benefit from the, the research that we've done. I love this. So the open source research project within the Sound of AI community could be a hugging face version for music, audio, and the likes. Uh, well, <laughs> that is a dream, but uh, the scope is completely different. Uh, hugging face is just a very large project, right? We are not attempting to uh, provide an audio and music f framework right? But rather we're focusing on a particular application, but perhaps this can just be the, the first step in that direction of having a, an open source community that's working on something similar to Hug and Face, but in uh, the audio music space. So that would be really interesting. And why not? It could be the Sound of AI community leading the charge. In that respect this, this is a big hairy audacious goal so i'm sure we're gonna see more and hear more about uh, valerio velardo you know uh, you might uh, be opening something new here something that's quite needed because uh, i've seen the the community the sound of ai community grew uh, organically to three thousand members is that correct and how how much time uh, did the community grow that fast uh that much uh, I think it's around a year, and that is the, the community which is on our Slack uh, server, yeah, Slack workspace, whereas there's also a YouTube channel that is probably the, the one that, that's actually, uh, I don't know, fueling the, uh, the community. And the Sound of AI YouTube channel uh, is just dedicated to tutorials and all things around uh, AI audio music, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Um, I saw you I actually saw a YouTube video about uh, you offering uh, um, perspective and insight on how to train a deep learning CNN sound classifier with PyTorch and Torch Audio. 
uh, on the Urban Sound AK uh, data set. Um, that's a fantastic audio-based deep learning project. How, how has the feedback uh, gone so far and why did you build this project and why do you build this, um, these tutorials on YouTube? Because that's quite an effort and practically growing this community is quite an effort. What's your motivation behind it? Uh, well, uh, first of all, the motivation is that I've had the luck of working in very, I would say, fertile environments for audio and music processing, generative music and all of these kind of things, both on the side of academia, where when I did my PhD, I had fantastic supervisors, fantastic colleagues with whom I published quite a lot of papers. And at the same time, I had the opportunity to create a startup in the space, which was called uh, Mellow Drive. And so we went to uh, California. We did uh, an accelerator there in Silicon Valley. So it was a very, very exciting uh, opportunity for me. And at this point, I feel like the need to start to giving back to the community. And for me, really, the, the driver is providing people all over the world with access to top-notch content, top-notch uh, content in this particular niche, which is AI, audio and music processing and generative music, which unfortunately uh, is a little bit neglected. You won't find much uh, or many resources in this field, unfortunately, uh, and still today. So that is definitely one of the of the drivers there. So trying to provide that uh, knowledge and offering that knowledge uh, as much as possible for free to people who otherwise may not have the opportunity to to have access to that knowledge. And this so far has working out has worked out really really well. I got a lot of very good feedback from people who said, "Well, Valeria, your courses or your content on YouTube." has helped me quite a lot with my thesis or with my work and stuff like that. So that is really, really rewarding and at the same time refreshing to hear. Now, to go back to your question regarding this particular series, so PyTorch, sound classification with PyTorch and Torch Audio, well, the feedback is actually quite good, and uh, but that was expected because uh, a lot of people ask me to cover PyTorch because earlier I always used uh, TensorFlow and Keras on my channel. And so I've been asked by many people to cover PyTorch and in particular uh, Torch Audio, which is a library for audio processing directly embedded into the PyTorch framework. So yeah, that was Really, really good uh, feedback. And I think like it's also helping out a lot of people to, first of all, get accustomed to this really cool uh, deep learning framework, which is PyTorch, but with the peculiarity of being in the space of audio and sound processing, which, as I said, unfortunately, isn't really that common to find. Here's an interesting perspective that I, uh, I've been reading on, on forums and from different uh, voice leaders in the AI space. Is deep learning the dead end for artificial intelligence? Uh, well, it's difficult to say. Um, and <laughs> since, yeah, I mean, things are running so fast that's really, really difficult to, to yeah, just make a bet and say, yeah, deep learning is going to be the end of it and it's going to lead us directly to general AI. Well, I don't know. Well, 
All I know is that in the case, for example, it's generative music, deep learning probably is not the end of it. And in my case and in my experience, what I saw is that in order to have systems that, that are useful, and by useful I mean that could be tweaked by users, musicians, producers to collaborate with, uh, then deep learning probably is just not enough by itself. You need some sort of knowledge, higher level knowledge injected into the craziness of the generative models based off deep learning only. So my guess is that moving forward, we'll, uh, we'll probably reach a point where the, the more traditional AI approach, more symbolic based AI approach and the, the kind of more modern approach, which is deep learning, probably will find a way of linking uh, or being connected together because deep learning is fantastic to solve very, very hard problems. But at the same time, symbolic reasoning really helps out when it comes to define the uh, cert or define certain fields and provide all of the structure that's necessary for the deep learning models to thrive. And this is something that I find out to be true in the case of generative music. And possibly this can be also generalized to other fields. Mm. You also mentioned um, the fact that you come from a very lucky, fortunate context. Um, it doesn't happen to, to many of us. So that's uh, definitely fortunate. Uh, but I think you have this unique or close to unique mix of uh, domain expertise. You, you also uh, offered lessons for uh, theory of music, piano performance, uh, and more. But you are also applying machine learning and deep learning to large-scale music analysis um, or running in-depth evaluations for models or... Um, building machine learning pipelines or offering advice. Uh, so it's uh, it's like taking two different worlds, combining them, technology and art, which are potentially different. Uh, could someone that has a pure technical profile ever be in a situation or in a position where they could um, build something of equal um, depth um, compared to someone that has both domain expertise and technical expertise? Uh, yeah, this is a great question. My answer to that is yes, but. I mean, technical knowledge is fundamental, is necessary for us, but I don't think is sufficient if you want to go deep enough in certain fields, like, for example, music. Music is an ex extremely complicated or complex field. And having domain expertise there, it's just going to give you an incredible bump in your understanding of the problem and way to solve it. By knowing, for example, music theory, you have access to all sorts of uh, kind of intuitions and insights when you analyze your deep learning or AI models that otherwise you wouldn't have. In that respect, this is something that I highly suggest to the people who 
start getting into AI audio, but more specifically into AI music, which is, of course, you have to know your machine learning, your math really, really well. But at the same time, it's really important that you know the other side of the moon, the dark side of the moon, if you will, right? The domain uh, that you are actually working on, so the music, right? And in that case, I always suggest to get accustomed. Uh, well, you don't have to be an expert in music theory. You don't have to be a musicologist, but you have to at least have a first understanding uh, of music theory, composition, production, and also music history. Why not? Because that is going to give you an incredible advantage at uh, understanding what you are doing, especially when you are trying to generate music. Because most of the time when you generate music, you would generate music in a specific style. And then uh, if you know that style quite well, all the different constraints, non-written rules of that style, uh, that is going to help you out to create a model or to create a system that is way more efficient at generating that type of music. So, to give you a brief summary to all of that, I would say uh, technical knowledge, of course, is fundamental, but it's not enough, I, I would say. So you have to go that extra mile. And as someone who was in, in a position to hire people with my startup, I would always look for people who, of course, are really strong on the technical side, but who also have a very strong background in music, be that as a producer, as a musician, or someone who studied also music theory. Super useful perspective. Uh, I think this could be extended to, to so many uses of AI across Absolutely. different this industries. Just a general yeah. rule. Perfect. Um, how are you? Uh, so you're currently offering some, some help to companies as well. You focus on five problems. If there's no in-house AI audio talent, you can help. Uh, if a company needs um, of a single tech session for clearing doubts, to build a team from scratch, to develop an AI audio or music product with a team of generalist data scientists, or to devise an AI audio strategy, of course, with a attached realistic R&D plan and more. How are you finding this uh, experience so far? And are companies actually trusting or seeking help for for externalizing or uh, clearing doubts in this space? Because uh, what I've seen from my own experience is that, yes, companies are slowly and um, uh, uh, trying to work alongside experts and um, AI uh, technologists, but, but they are afraid of actually seeking help. They want to build everything in-house. They don't want to take any externals or they don't re realize that they actually need um, specialized help. Um, I have to say that I have a little bit of a different experience here, so, which is mostly uh, positive. Probably that's due to the fact that many of these companies, audio tech companies, music tech companies, or entertainment companies, or any type of company but with an interest in audio music, uh, are some of them are new to the game, are definitely new to the game of artificial intelligence. But it's not just artificial intelligence, it's AI audio or AI uh, music. And so 
they know that there's a gap there. And many of the companies which actually contact me don't have the, the internal knowledge and talent to run the project that they have in mind. And they acknowledge that, right? And they, sometimes I, got, I get contacted by companies which have data science uh, teams uh, internally, so expertise in artificial intelligence and machine learning, but really close to non-experience in audio processing or music generation processing, right? And they realize that that is an extra step and that's necessary. It's not enough to have a good machine learning engineer or generalist to tackle many of the problems that they have in they may have in mind, for example, music recommendation or speech uh, processing or what have you, right? So in that respect, I noticed that... Uh, Many of these companies tend to be very open and open-minded, absolutely, and they tend to trust uh, my advice. And probably that comes also from uh, my continuous exercise online of releasing continuous content on the Sound of AI channel that uh, I found out that it really builds that trust with uh, your viewership and they tend to uh, look at you as a as an ex as a domain expert right and so they when they come to you they already in a sense know you of course it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, knowledge right is only um, one sided type of knowledge type of relationship but still like they they acknowledge your expertise and they also acknowledge that they may have a lack of internal knowledge and talent that they uh, need to uh, fill one way or another sometimes this means just uh, getting like someone uh, with that type of expertise and so in that respect they would contact me to uh, ask to hire people most of the time from my community and use me as a sort of uh, gatekeeper uh, for that hiring process. But sometimes it goes way uh, deeper than that, where we just start building together a, an R&D strategy focused on uh, feasible uh, goals in the AI audio and music space. And sometimes it goes even further than that when uh, I start building full teams or start also teaching or providing, offering those skills to the data science, which are already part of that company. And sometimes it means I actually help them build and implement their ideas from scratch. So all in all, I would say uh, I haven't seen a lot of uh, pushback to these offers, actually the opposite. So people tend to be very open and very upfront. Yeah. That's so positive to hear. Fingers crossed to that. Uh, yeah. Maybe because the niche uh, perspective uh, of AI audio for music, um, it makes it all more um, trustworthy. As you've mentioned, the, the, the viewership score in, adds up on the trust score. Um, or even the need to have this field uh, augmented or helped or discover something new in the space. Yeah, I think that's uh, totally true. And I would say also probably some of that has also to do with the fact that there is really not much information available regarding this topic, this specific niche, uh, so AI 
audio processing, right? And at the same time, I would say that it is also a lack of talent or people don't know where to look for talent, right? And the talent, of course, is very scarce uh, in the space. So if you bundle up all of these problems, then you have a quite large problem. And that probably makes the whole consulting approach on my end more straightforward. It's interesting because audio processing impacts other industries and use cases like voice search for e-com shopping. It's audio processing part of it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So the the thing that's uh, interesting to realize and that many people don't necessarily realize is that the uh, all of these audio technologies are building quite fast and they're going to have a very large impact besides the, I would say, the, uh, the field of music or audio core tech companies. So whenever you're using some sort of audio-based, a voice-based interface, you are using audio processing. And, but it doesn't end, uh, end there. So there's way more to that. For example, in the case of manufacturing, there are very interesting applications of predictive maintenance, for example, or spotting failures that you may have in machines just by checking and analyzing the airborne uh, sound, so directly the noise produced by the machines. And by analyzing it, you can tell whether the machine is working properly or it has um, a, some sort of failure, right? So in that respect, this is a technology that's going to impact many different verticals. And I believe that this technology and all the things around AI audio processing are going to grow quite exponentially over the last few years. Over the sorry, over the next few years, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's it's all as you've mentioned, growing so fast, and um, the dynamicity in this field is actually uh, creating this fear of missing out to everyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to to watch out from your perspective and from your experience so far. Um, if we could limit to to three, what's a hard problem to solve? Uh, when dealing with uh, AI audio, say a top um, three problems to solve or challenges in the space. I know there are many, <laughs> but let's uh, cherry pick three okay. of them. Yeah, so I would say most of the problems that we have in the space are hard problems. And up till now, I would say that we have sufficient solutions for some of these problems, but not great solutions most of the time, right? But if I only had to pick three top problems, I would say absolutely problem number one, music generation. This is such a hard thing to do for all the reasons that uh, we discussed earlier, right? So there's this element of subjectivity. What does it mean for a generative music system to be successful? Well, we don't know. And because we don't know, it's difficult to, to optimize our models or op optimize our uh, systems because we don't have a metric we can use to... Uh, objectively understanding whether we are going in the right direction. And 
the main problem with that type of task, generative music, is that generating music is very hard because music is really hard. It is a very complex field that's very difficult to uh, replicate. We've gone very far to certain subsets of music generation. So, for example, now we can generate uh musical phrases that sound really, really good, but then the overall musical structure of a piece is still a problem. So you would have these generative music systems that generate great music at a local level, a few bars, but then when you zoom out at the level of a musical section or or, or overall piece, then you start hearing incoherence there. So yeah, definitely generative music, number one uh, problem. Number two, probably, I would say, all things that have to deal with emotion recognition. So this could be music emotion recognition or speech emotion recognition. So you have a musical piece or a uh, speech segment, and you have to recognize the emotion that you have there. And this is a very important task on the one hand, but then on the other, it is a very difficult one. Once again, because there's a level of subjectivity here. So if you take different people and you ask them what type of emotion they feel while listening to a certain piece of music, well, they would probably tell you that they feel emotions that are slightly different. So it is difficult to train a model uh, that may be capable of recognizing something that's already subjective uh, for human beings, right? So there's this almost, uh, I would say, glass ceiling there, which is uh, subjective human performance that's impossible to, to beat because at the end of the day, we are the evaluators for these models, right? And so there's an intrinsic problem in this uh, sort of uh, tasks, which is connected to the subjectivity of the tasks. Absolutely. So this would be problem number two. So problem number three, I would say speech recognition, and this is a huge one. Well, I think right now the models, uh, well, top-notch, state-of-the-art models are doing really good, but they're not perfect. And they're in that 1%, 2%, well, that could be a problem. It's it's the difference between being a human being, right, and being capable of recognizing speech almost perfectly and being a machine where there's still a, a sort of like thing that is missing there. And it's really, really difficult to to get like to, to, to the human level of almost uh, perfection. It's with most AI tasks, uh, and this is also true for AI audio, it is relatively simple to get started and to get a somewhat decent result, but then you have a low of diminishing returns. So you have to invest a lot, for example, in data or uh, architecture complexity to get only small percentage uh, increases in accuracy. And this is definitely true for speech recognition, which uh, uh, right now is pushed almost to its limits. Could we think that the uh, speech recognition problem is uh, in the box of framing, the frame problem in AI, basically, 
the frame problem describing an issue with using first order logic to express facts and the fact that speech recognition has a lot of uh, uh, environment, context and uh, arbitrarily uh, assumptions that cannot we cannot pattern them out or we cannot understand them or reasoning them enough. Uh, I see here a similaritude with um, Elon Musk's effort to actually build level five driving, self-driving, mm-hmm. and him not succeeding because of this uh, frame problem in AI. Oh, yeah, um, I, I, I absolutely agree. And here we just go back to, to, the point, to the question that you asked earlier. So is deep learning the, the end of AI, yeah. right? And, I, yeah. and as I mentioned earlier, I don't think so. And as you said, there's this framing problem, right? So the knowledge about the, the field or about the frame that's absolutely missing from deep learning algorithms. And I believe that if we want to improve, once again, probably we should try to combine this bottom-up approach, which is deep learning, with a more top-down uh, one, which is some sort of uh, reasoning or logic-based symbolic AI, which, by the way, was very, very common, um, very fashionable a few decades ago. <laughs> AI is not new at all. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. You, you, you would be surprised that the, possibly, that the first piece of music generated by a machine was com- that we know of was composed in 1957. Beautiful. So, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. And we think we are revolutionizing <laughs> everything. Yeah, we are probably just improving on things. But Valerio, thank you yeah. so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to share some of these ideas with you. Such a fantastic episode. Thank you for listening. The Sound of AI is a great channel by Valerio Velardo and it will get you started in no time for anything AI for sound and audio. Check out their open source research project. The community is building a speech-operating neural synthesizer following open source and crowdfunding practices. Till the next episode, goodbye all.